welcome to Aviation United by Aviation Sorrow. I'm delighted to be chatting with speaker, trainer, writer, and advocate David Woods Bartley. David will be chatting with me today about suicide awareness. A very good day to you, David. How are you doing today? Good morning, David. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much, and thank you for the honor and privilege of, of being with you and having the opportunity to speak to the aviation industry. No, you're welcome. I mean, it's my honor. It's it's. Uh, we will kick off because we've so much to talk about, but as, as this thing seems to be rolling on, the listeners want to know where our guests are from. So where are you right now in the world? So I am in the United States. I am on the, the far west coast in the beautiful state of, of California. And really California, David, could be two states. We, I live in Northern California, so about 30 minutes east of the capital. Okay. And Northern California is very different than Southern California, which is probably better well known. So. Um, but it's all beautiful, though. It, it, yes, indeed. It is diverse. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. I feel very blessed to live here. And how's the weather today? We always This is an Irish thing. We always need to know, know. how the weather is. <laughs> no, well, interesting, David. My, my father um, is a meteorologist, so I totally get the, right. the interest in weather. Uh, and even at 96, David, he carries around his cell phone and has a weather app. Oh, wow. So today, okay. here in, in Northern California in the summertime, particularly August, it can be very, very warm. We had today, however, there is a beautiful breeze. We're probably going to be about 90 degrees and maybe 20% humidity. So oh, it's really no. ideal. So, I know. I'm so sorry. So jealous. I mean, we're having a heat wave in Ireland, which is like 15 degrees. So that's kind of like, <laughs> that's, that's as best as we can do. I don't mean to be disrespect Ireland. It's, Ireland is beautiful, but we don't get the California weather. Maybe two right. days a year. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> we, we, try, we try our best. But generally, uh, David, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? So, David, I have battled what I call the monster of mental illness for close to 40 years. I, I'm 58 years old. And I'm sure we will get more into the specifics, but my purpose in life now, after having been saved uh, almost exactly nine years ago from killing myself, well, okay. that m my purpose now in life is to, to journey with people, to support people, to let people know that it is indeed possible to make this transition, this trek from mental hellness to the experience of what I believe, David, is our birthright, mental wellness, mental health. And that mental health is not some privilege of the rich and famous, that we are born into this life with that very right. And with COVID-19, with the changes, the unexpected pressures, the forced isolation and social distancing, this, unfortunately, David, is the perfect condition for the monster and, yes. and personifying this evil entity, more not fictional, but actually nonfiction. He is having his way. And I think that we need to collectively join together to make a difference. And, and I can promise you, my life having been saved, it is indeed possible for each of us to support ourselves and save other lives. So, so what is then, uh, I mean, we hear the term suicide awareness. So what, what is suicide awareness? So I think part of it, David, is to, to understand the, the important question of why. And I cannot, it, it's difficult. I spend, this is what, what I do to speak to audiences all over the world now. I can't imagine the, the horror and the almost incalculable grief for those souls who have to suffer the loss 
of somebody important to them to suicide. And, and the question would be why, why would someone take their life? Yeah. And in terms of my story, so nine years ago, I was standing on what's known as the Forest Hill Bridge. Now, everybody, of course, knows the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, the Forest Hill Bridge is about two, two hours east to, as people head up to the beautiful Lake Tahoe. Yes. And while yes. the Golden Gate Bridge stands 250 feet above the water, the Forest Hill Bridge stands 730 feet above okay. the water. Scary. Okay. Yep. Was on that place, ready to jump, and a courageous first responder initially established contact, which is logistical, but then created connection, which is life-saving because connection creates hope and hope saves lives. And I was taken off the bridge to an emergency department and then to a psychiatric hospital where I would spend 15 days. And David, when people found out I was there and why, they could not comprehend it. Because instead of seeing me as suicidal and clinically depressed, people saw me as the happy and contented co-director of a very large, internationally known animal sanctuary called A Chance for Bliss. And the sanctuary, David, was an amazing place home to as many as 100 animals at any one time. 25 horses, 23 dogs, nine potbelly pigs, goats and sheep and ducks and geese and bunnies and birds, this amazing place. And to come to the sanctuary, an animal had to be very sick, very old, have some sort of special need, or the majority, David, were at the end of life. And so we did know adoptions. And we became known throughout the world as this forever home in the vernacular of the rescue world, where animals got to live out the rest of their life. And on June 2nd, 2010, we were the cover story in the life section of USA Today. And so wow. long-winded to answer your question, the most important thing I believe is for all of us to realize no matter where we are, is sometimes what hurts the most can't be seen. Sometimes great despair and soul-killing agony lies just behind a forced smile, a distracting joke, or in this case, a seemingly perfect and ideal life. And so suicide awareness, I think the primary function is to first let people know that the illness is invisible. There is no crutch, there's no Band-Aid, there's no patch. And if we try to answer the almost unanswerable question of why, the first step, David, is to understand this hurt, this, this awful condition that somebody is battling each and every day lies beyond our view. And so I'll, I'll begin with that aspect of, of suicide nurse. That's probably the most important thing that I talk about. Can, can I ask then, I know we didn't touch on this topic before the podcast uh, started, but when when you decided that you were going to attempt suicide nine years ago, what, what was going through your mind when you were going onto that bridge? So I don't know, David, of other maladies that have the ability to do this, but it is universal for most everybody who suffers from certainly clinical depression, which is my area of expertise, but I would imagine for most any form of mental illness that the monster begins, in my case, an early age of about 11 years old, which I can talk about early, a little bit later, begins to plant the seeds of these dark and awful thoughts. And like any seed, if it's watered, in this case with very dark water, 
those seeds will take root and grow. And on this particular day, August 31st, 2011, I had come to know, and it wasn't just a passing belief, it wasn't just a, uh, well, maybe this is true. true. Truthfully, David, I became to believe with every ounce of my being that I was ugly and worthless and useless, that I was stupid, that I had become an embarrassment and a burden to other people. But most damning was the fact that I thought it was true. Okay. That everybody in my then life, my, my former bride, Deanna, a whole host of family and friends, David, on that day, I became convinced that those people, most important to me, that their lives would improve exponentially in the wake of my death and the absence of my pitiful existence. I had long suffered from these thoughts, but it was the, it was, there was on that particular day, it just breached over where it became maybe to a certainty. And so it's interesting, it's, it's important to note, David, and again, I say this with all due respect to the, the people who've suffered the horror of losing a soul to suicide, that I know for me, and I've heard this from a great number of any people, on, in that moment, on that bridge, on a dark spot, on a tall, tall bridge, I truly believed, and I know it's illogical, I truly believed that what I was about to do was selfless, not right. selfish. And it, it's almost, it, it, it makes no sense, but the person, because they're fighting this battle for so many years and they become fatigued and tired and then convinced that this literally would be a gift to the surviving people, an end of their pain and, and making other people's lives easier, that's where I arrived on that particular day. So you felt you were doing everybody a favor? Absolutely. Without, not a shred of doubt. And so when you spent the 15 days in, in, the, uh, in the hospital, can I say hospital, is that right or wrong? Or is it psychiatric? Yeah, no, exactly. You can say psych ward, hospital. Okay. Um, yeah, in, in the United States, we have an expression. It's a legal code, 5150. So you are involuntary, involuntarily put in, into a locked ward. Right. And, and then did you, you mentioned there with regards to, you know, well, that's what I said it, that you, you felt you were doing them a favor. So when your family found out what you had tried to do, which was commit suicide, what was their reaction? You know, I'm unique in a lot of ways, not for me personally, but unique in the sense that I have an amazingly supportive group of, of amazing souls in my life. And one, they had no idea because I was a great actor. The right. sanctuary, as you can imagine, David, was really busy. So I hid, as I like to say, behind the velocity of my life to distract people away from looking at me. And when they found out, David, they were, they were heartbroken that they didn't realize the extent of my suffering. And so it's not always the case. There are people who have people in their life, and those people are afraid of mental illness, which I totally understand. But I believe my family leveraged the gift of curiosity to arrive at the place of understanding, because I believe that the opposite of fear isn't calm. The opposite of fear is understanding, because the more we understand, the less we fear. So my family really endeavored to try to understand what I was going through. There was no judgment. They didn't pretend like they knew. They didn't say, I know exactly how you feel. They didn't start to, to pour forth a, a bunch 
of advice. What they did, David, is wrap me out around this amazingly warm and inclusive space of support to just sit with me and have a story I can share later about how I believe that we can literally save lives by sitting down. But I was blessed to have this, this group of people rush towards me. And in fact, there, David, there was a, a uh, payphone in the hallway at the psychiatric ward. You can tell, you can tell this is what a payphone is. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was a while ago. And that was the place where people, family members could call in and, and check on you if you were in the ward. Yep. So David, I heard from people that I had not heard from for years. And each and every one of them just said, look, whatever you need, it, I, I'm here for you. And in fact, it's a funny story. After a couple days, when the phone would ring, somebody would oftentimes just pass by, pick up the phone. And if it wasn't for them, they would call out somebody else's name. Well, after a couple of days, David, I got so many calls that the other patients refused to answer the phone because they knew it was going to be for me. So I apologize <laughs> to them. But it's this it's the simplicity of picking up a phone to call somebody in this dire situation and said, I am so sorry. Please no, I love you. I'm here to support you. Just allow me to lift you up. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just fascinating. I mean, it's, you know, you mentioned there that it's, you know, you're in, you're in this environment, which most people would, would, would love like an animal sanctuary. And um, mm -hmm. I mean, I love animals. Um, sometimes I hate to say this, but I actually prefer animals than some human beings, but anyway, <laughs> that's, for, that's for a different topic, but it's, you know, to, to, to move on then, you know, is it possible then for any person from any walk of life background or industry, I know in the aviation industry, particularly it's highly regulated, which fully understand, uh, which is for the safety of all staff and passengers. Um, but there is potential there uh, because they're human beings. So is it possible for, for people within any industry to have suicidal thoughts? Absolutely, David. It's, and I'll tell you a personal story. So my beloved brother-in-law, um, after he graduated from college, he, went, he was ROTC and he went into the Air Force. Okay. And he was trained on a variety of aircraft and ultimately flew F-15s. Oh, he nice. retired. Yeah, I know, right? Very He's, nice. very He's maverick. He's Tom Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Retired, then flew 747s for Atlas, which is a, an international cargo carrier that does the surplus for like UPS and, and FedEx. Yep. Then did 20 years as a captain for JetBlue. And I bring this up because just recently, my, he's 65 and my brother-in-law had to retire. Okay. And so he didn't want to, but he was forced to. And with that came an experience of depression and uncertainty. I don't think my brother-in-law has become suicidal, but I know my brother-in-law has become depressed. And depression left unchecked will oftentimes, David, force a soul into isolation, which is distinct, by the way, from solitude. Solitude is a choice. Isolation is not. And depression left unchecked will oftentimes put a soul into isolation where then the dark thoughts become overwhelming emotions and the overwhelming emotions can trigger what can be deadly actions. And so because all of us 
experience stress. All of us experience grief. All of us experience loss. Some of us, like myself, had the seeds planted for my condition, my particular form of mental illness when I was just 11. It was the awful confluence of losing my father when he was just 41 and I was just seven. And then David suffering the horror of being twice raped by a community leader, somebody who was supposed to care for me instead violated me in the most horrific ways. And so that was the genesis which unfortunately is not uncommon. And so we don't know the stresses and the conditions and the struggles that people are suffering behind these, what sometimes are smiling masks. And so the monster could care less about demographics. It could care less about the country of origin, around orientation, around religious beliefs. It doesn't matter. So in answer to your question, and I think unfortunately what's happening now, it is spreading out to people who maybe we're on the fringe in the sense that they were having some more mild experiences of, of depression or, or other forms of mental illness, but this, the COVID, the, the uncertainty around the aviation industry, if I look at my, my brother-in-law who forced to retire after all these years of flying, we are on a very slippery slope that if we don't do something, and, and I have what I think is a simple response, an uncomplicated one, but if we don't harness that, not just the professionals who have initials past their name, but each and every one of us to harness this to support ourselves and others, we're going to see a loss of life by suicide, a global psychological epidemic and pandemic like we have never experienced in the history of humanity. Frightening. Yes, very much so. I mean, you, you mentioned there, David, with, you know, you, you've been through these awful experiences throughout your life and here you are talking to me today in very positive and up, upbeat manner and you, you mentioned there that you were you became like an actor that you could hide your feelings so what's what are the signs then is there any signs we can look for that somebody may be experiencing signs of depression or suicidal thoughts yeah absolutely david and and i'll stress this at the beginning of this david is these signs are in, oftentimes incredibly subtle. They are so easy to miss. And I'm not saying this as a judgment to my family or anybody else, because part of it is, and we had talked about this, David, especially for we middle-aged men, and if you look at the demographics, in, in, certainly in the terms of the United States, that middle-aged men are at the highest risk factor of, of ending their life, and it's because of stigma. We were raised by men of, of the Great Depression and World War II and, and a certain steeliness and self-resolve, but those men needed to be that way in that time. And, and we men having that influence, which was very positive, the world is a different place. And so sometimes I think we get confused and, and it's difficult, if not impossible, depending on our, the paradigm that we live in, to reach out for help. And so the subtle clues are, variations in behavior. A person who is talkative all of a sudden seems to be less likely to share. There can even be the situation, David, where all of a sudden, some, all of a sudden people are formalizing and, and putting their affairs in order. Sometimes people are giving away some prized possessions. Sometimes people go around to a great number of people in their lives just to express how much they, their, their relationship has meant to them. On the flip side of that, sometimes people who have been more placid and calm all of a sudden are 
angry, irritated, agitated. They may be downright mean. And part of this is it's these emotions in the, in the lack of the safe place to express them, it just becomes this great pressure and they explode in these different ways. So the bottom line is the subtle differences, the subtle changes in behaviors for us to recognize. And then like my family, leveraging curiosity to create understanding is to form a dialogue in a way that's supportive. We don't want to just offer advice. We don't want to say, you know, you should just think positive. You should exercise. You should eat right. Because if those of us who live with this hear that all the time, it's more about, David, creating the space for somebody to just share their story. And, and I think it's interesting when I tell, talk about the first responder when I was on the bridge, after he had established this, what I call, when I, when I teach police officers, I, I say, utilize curiosity like a tactical resource, like this thing that's on your utility belt. And David, the first question out of this man's mouth was, David, what does it feel like to be depressed? And David, in that moment, I remember everything decelerated, everything calmed down. And this officer obviously knew that the key to safety is to, to slow things down. And he asked me a counterintuitive question because the thought is, if I ask somebody about the acute nature of their feelings in that moment, it's going to push them over. Right. In this case, the rail. But in fact, David, it's just the opposite because nobody wants to have this conversation. And then he said, David, how long have you lived with this condition? And David, how has this condition influenced your life? And then David, he asked me this question. He said, David, what's it like on your worst days? And David, he asked, and then he gave me this incredible gift of listening. Not like he was checking his watch and looking around. He had connected with me. And there's a great quote by an author here in the United States, Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, who says, our listening creates a sanctuary for the homeless parts in other people. Now, David, I had a place to live in reality, but on that bridge, on that dark spot, on that tall, tall 700-foot structure, I was homeless. And then after allowing me the space to share and not give back any sort of advice, he then pivoted from what I say, a half a mustard seed size, not of faith, but of hope, because I think hope is that strong. He said, David, what's it like to live and work with all those animals? And he said, David, what's it like on your best days? And then the question, David, that had me lift up and take in this spectacular view that the bridge affords us was, David, what do you want the rest of your life to look like? And that question and the entire experiencing of his listening allowed me just a little bit, but just enough hope to take in and consider maybe there is in fact something to live for. And so I pushed back, turn to my left and retrace my steps. And here, David, is the exclamation point on the end of that experience. Middle-aged man to middle-aged man, he, what he didn't say was, hey, way to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, way to be a real man, way to be strong. He didn't say any of that, David. What he did is he looked at me and he said, thank you for telling me how you feel. And in that moment, he validated my feelings. He allowed me to feel okay that 
I wasn't embarrassed because in some of those initial questions, when the words went out of my mouth, I wanted to grab them and pull them back, but I couldn't. And so look at the genius and the brilliance and the generosity of this one human being who allowed me to begin these steps, which has been a lot of work. I don't want to, I don't want to create the image that since that day, it's been perfect because David, I still have my days where not only am I clinically depressed, but I have days now where I think about killing myself, but I know what to do because I've had the influence and the guidance and been taught that the malady doesn't just impact my mind. It impacts my body, my mind, and my spirit, the essence of who I am. So because of the, the influence of other people, I have put my self-care on a pedestal, which is, again, the exact opposite of being selfish. We are oftentimes admonished that we have to put other people first. But if my tank is empty, I have nothing to give you. And so my care plan is all about diet and sleep and exercise, about psychiatry and counseling and medication, about my own spiritual practice, and then the purpose. I have a feel, I feel like I'm contributing something because the sanctuary no longer exists. But what I endeavor to do is to wrap my experience in a collection of about 20 or 30 animal stories to try to make this really difficult subject a little bit more approachable, allow people a safe distance to, to be able to, to imagine themselves in what an animal went through but also be able to take away something that's more relatable. They're not just fuzzy stories, but they have a teaching point. And that's the purpose of my life, which I never thought I'd be doing it. But part of it is to pay homage to the amazing people who have continued to love and support and serve me. And also try to go out and be of humble service to anybody, anywhere, anytime, no matter what. It's, it's one of the stories about Joshua, is it? Yeah, it is. That's, and this is a great, thank you for bringing that up. This is a great story in which behavior, just observing it makes no sense. So one day, Deanna, my former wife and I get a call at the sanctuary and it's from an, a local animal shelter. And, and what happened was an old man in his 80s, David brought in this equally aged dog. He was a basset hound mix. He had a suede back like an old pony, kind of a shaggy coat. He walked with a limp and he had no teeth on the right-hand side, so his tongue hang out, hung out. He, was, he looked like a hot mess, as we like to say. <laughs> so the old man went to the counter and said, hey, I, I found this dog as a stray. I thought I should bring him in. And the staff at the shelter was like, wow, thank you so much. If you could please fill out some information about you and where you found him, we'll take him in the back and maybe he's microchipped. Maybe this we can find out who his guardian is. And so the old man, David, fills out the information as he's requested. The staff goes in the back, does the scan, and then comes back and says, we're in luck. He's microchipped. Then, David, the staff member compared the information that was recorded on the microchip to the old man's information, and they matched. Now, I'll be honest, in my unevolved self, if I was that staff member, I would have berated, if not yelled, if not screamed at this old man, saying, sir, how could you dump an old being at the end of their life? What if somebody just threw you away? But David, this staff member did not do that. She made this all-important transition from what's wrong with you, and instead she asked the question, she looked at the man and said, sir, what's happening? What's going on? How can I help you? And in that moment, in that safe place, the man, David, began to cry so hard 
was like he was heaving and shaking. And at the point he could get himself back together, he looked down and he said, this is Joshua. Joshua is the most important thing in my life. I have Joshua since he was an eight-week-old puppy, but I'm dying. And I'm going into a medical facility and I can't keep my best friend. And so I thought if I said he was a stray, instead of the fact that I had to surrender him, it would give him more time to find a home. The great Mr. Rogers said, quite frankly, there's no one we can't learn to love once we know their story. And here's the beautiful thing about understanding, David, that in that smooth and fertile and level space, answers to problems come up that are not available if I judge. And the staff member knew and said, there's this sanctuary down the hill. Maybe they have room at the end. And I will never forget, as long as I live, David, this beautiful man handing me the most important thing in his life with this request and knowing that I would care for his baby and he could go on and do what he needed to do and I would take care of Joshua. Yeah, I, I mean, as mentioned already, I'm an animal lover and right. I, I'd have great difficulty. Um, I have a dog here uh, called Daisy. I'd be crying every day and every night if anything happened to her so I can understand. Sure. It's the emotion involved is is so. What about then, Dave? Your whole certification in in uh, mental health for state for adults, youth, uh, suicide awareness for everyone, and you're a national trainer for groundbreaking suicide prevention technique known as QPR, which is question, persuade, and refer. So, what what is QPR and how can it help? So QPR, David, is so imagine CPR for mental health, and so it created probably close to 20 years ago by a wonderful psychologist named Dr. Paul Quinette. Dr. Quinette, one of the things that he says is that it's the unasked questions that lead to tragedy. And so we circle all the way back to the beginning, David, of my time with you today is someone ends her life by suicide. It's not commit suicide. It's either kill themselves or end their life by suicide. If we can begin to change the vernacular around that. And we're left with why, and oftentimes, and it's not a judgment, we, myself included, because they're uncomfortable, are not asking this question. So Dr. Quinette came up with this three-step process. The first Q is question. Ask these sorts of questions. P is persuade. Persuade an individual to just hold on. There's the great acronym of hope is hold on, pain ends. Just hold on. And then R is for refer. Refer that person to professional help. And it's a beautiful thing because we may think we are not capable or qualified to make a life-saving difference, and we can. We can ask a question. We can persuade with compassion, curiosity without assumption, and we can refer somebody. We can journey with somebody to where they can get professional help. And so it is a, an amazing program, incredibly simple, and it's one of the ways that I think, David, that we can harness what we already know because we've been on the receiving of a compassionate, non-judgmental question. We have been persuaded to move away from a dangerous place to a place that's safe. And we have been referred at different times to people who can take care of us. So we know this works. It's just a matter of embracing it and then practicing it on a regular basis. Ultimately, David, each, of, each and every one of these acts, either individually or collectively, not just with QPR but others, the bottom line, David, is is creating connection because connection creates hope and hope indeed saves lives. Hope will be what wins the war. The, the, the problem of mental illness is complicated 
Hope isn't. Hope's simple. Hope is the answer. So where can our listeners find you? I mean, uh, to pretty much get motivated to get inspired by by your talks and your chat. Are you on social media? Do you have a website? I do. So the website is my name, David Woods, W-O-O-D-S, Bartley, B-A-R-T-L-E-Y.com, DavidWoodsBartley.com. I mean, I'm going to be um, changing the website a little bit, but right now it's lots of animal stories. In fact, David, you may, if you, you loving Daisy, on the about <laughs> section, there's a sanctuary page. There's a six minute video that was made about the sanctuary that by these amazing people that I think that you will love. So davidwoodsbartley.com. I've now am doing virtual talks and workshops. Um, my the talk that I do most is a, a longer ver- variation of the TED talk. The TED Talk was How Connections Saved My Life. The longer version is sometimes what hurts the most can't be seen, and sometimes what helps the most is easy to do. And then the, probably the most popular workshop is I Don't Know What to Say, Learning the Language of Mental Health. So people can engage with me to do virtual talks. I, I travel, not quite as much now, but I still do. And ultimately, it's just to, to help people. It's my job. My my job is to honor this, as mentioned, to honor the souls who love and support me. And and I, I just there's a great quote, and 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 Dr. Drew Ramsey is a psychiatrist in New York, and he has this great quote, David, that I'll share. And and I think it sums up everything that that I believe at this point. And in, in Dr. Ramsey's words, not mine, someone you see today is thinking about killing themselves. Your smile, your question, your love could save them. Trust me, they told me it did. And so I want to go out now in my life and smile at people and ask them questions and love them in any way that I can. I want to remember their name. I want to leverage curiosity to create understanding. I want to support anybody I can on your podcast. I want to support you. One day I want to come and meet Daisy. Um, <laughs> do all those things. Well, I'm sure Daisy will be waiting for you at the airport. She'll be, she'll be, she'll have her mask on her, but she'll be waiting. But I'm just, I'm looking at your website here, David, and um, to let our listeners know again, David, David Woods, uh, WoodsBarkley.com. And your featured clients, I mean, can I name drop some of these clients? Oh, can please, I? David, anybody you want to. Uh, so generally, I'm looking at the list here, which is very, very impressive. I mean, uh, Volunteers of America, Mental Health America, Brandman University, Unity of Sacramento, FDA, uh, Suter Health, Placer County, California, uh, California High Patrol, Sacramento, sorry, sorry, Sacramento County Sheriff. And then we have, the reason I'm saying all of these is because I, I cannot find an aviation one. And I'm sure aviation companies or industry professionals out there they'd be dying to get in touch with you because in this day and age, I just cannot believe with all the clients that you have and they're all high profile clients. There's no aviation industry clients there. So how are we going to change that, David? You know, I, I, well, David, thank you um, for one noticing that. And I, I, I would so love um, in part, it, it would be honoring my beloved brother-in-law and understanding now, especially with his recent retirement. So if there is a 
there are different, there's a simple way to contact me on my website for people who are interested in having me give a talk to, to managers, to leadership, to frontline staff, to flight crews, anybody. Um, please reach out. And if you'd like, David, there, I have a story and I can send it to you. And can, can you I tell it now? I sure can. Cool. So <laughs> I was flying last year to um, UConn, University of Connecticut, in on the East Coast. Oh, I have and, family living there. They're in. Uh, oh, excellent! I think it's Westport. Is it Westport? Yes. Yeah, Westport, Connecticut. Exactly. Yes. There you go. <laughs> so I'm on this on this plane, and I'm towards the back, and the plane is full. This was before COVID nineteen. And I'm watching this incredible flight attendant. And there is just something about it. She was an older woman, incredibly classy, absolutely stunningly beautiful. She had probably been a flight attendant, part of flight crew for a long time. She's beautiful, unlike me. That's why <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a face for radio. I don't mean that to offend anybody that's in radio. It's, anyway, move on. <laughs> and so I watched, I watched her and she was going to each and every passenger not just in a way that, that I know sometimes I, I, I get busy in life and I'm thinking about other things and I'm kind of mechanically going through things, but this woman was going, David, to each and every passenger and making a true, authentic connection, asking a question, smiling, and oftentimes thanking each and every one of them in a very authentic, not a rote way, for, for flying with them today. And as I started to see what she was doing. And David, as she was getting closer to me, I, she was so excited because I couldn't wait to have this one-on-one. -on -one. And I started to think, okay, what is she gonna say to me? And on that day, she had no idea that even though I was headed to this speaking engagement in which I was very excited, I was coming off several days in which it had been really hard. And it's just, David, sometimes that's just the way that it is. It just, it, it, depression can just jump up and open my eyes in the morning and this acrid breath of the monster is waiting for me. So this amazing woman had no idea that, that I was in a, a low grades feeling. And so sure enough, I'm on the aisle row and I'm, I'm excited because I just, I know I'm going to be given this gift unexpectedly, but divinely serendipitously. And she, she looked at me and first smiled and she said, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're on the plane with us. Thank you so much for flying. And it was almost like, David, when you see a beautiful woman or somebody you're awestruck by, like I couldn't say anything. <laughs> like my mouth for a guy that speaks for a living, all I could do is just smile. Yeah. And it changed my state in that moment. And so I think, and, and it brings back to what Dr. Ramsey talks about, that your smile, your question, your love could save them. She transported me into a place by just some questions. And so I think if I imagine the difficulties of flight crews, especially now with airlines suffering and, and people having the, the unimaginable uncertainty, are they going to have a job? What's going to happen? That that I would love to be of service to the aviation industry to, to share, to one, to talk about the reality 
of mental illness? What are some of the causes? What we can do to stay well? And David, I believe that the, the purest form of reciprocity is connection, that it is one of the foundational things that I do to stay well. In fact, I'd say the three most important words in mental health are connection, connection, connection. And to share some simple things that we can do, because I think that's what, if we look specifically at the aviation industry, it will be, and pardon the pun, it will, it will help the people who are suffering right now move into a space in which, if nothing else, they feel some modicum of calm, some small little droplet of hope. And they can create the safe place where they can speak freely about it. Because oftentimes, David, the simple act of sharing is one of the most beneficial things in creating this space for another human being. Well, well said. I mean, the, from my side, I mean, the, the aviation professionals, even, you know, aerospace, hospitality, tourism, I mean, they are mm. highly trained and they, they love this job. They love this industry. And um, they do have this wonderful caring side, uh, which, you know, even when they're tired, uh, even in the case of your story, um, they, they have a smile um, they, they're being professional, but also there is a caring side there and they really are truly remarkable. I mean, I spoke to um, uh, another uh, guest who'll be on uh, shortly and, and we had chatted briefly about, I think the aviation industry is one of the only industries in the world where you, you work with different people all the time. So right. it's very unusual that you work with the same individuals every single day. So because of that, they have to build up this um, uh, communication, you know, uh, build relationships, and they have to have this caring side, which uh, generally most, most passengers or, or the general public can, can see. So they are a credit to the industry. But mm. let, let's get back pretty much what you were saying there previously. Um, so you're willing to talk to, to uh, the aviation industry in general. So are you talking about online here, webinars? Are you talking, you can travel anywhere on the planet to do these yep. chats? Yeah, and I think, David, it's, I'm fine in regards to the, you know, the understandable concerns around COVID, but I, I'm, I'm happy to travel. If I, have a, I have a, if I was given the choice, I would much rather do talks and webinars in person. Not, of course, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to your podcast because I love this because it actually allows me to be of service to a greater number of people, but also can do the same talks virtually i think they're both are very positive not because of me but because of the message these great stories and i i just want to help people i i think having suffered you know if there is a hell i i, I think mental illness is the the definition in fact there's a great quote by by a wonderful psychologist, Dr. Beverly Shank, who says that depression must surely be the first cousin to hell on earth. And I'm like, absolutely. It's not so a life would, relative to have, is it? No. No, it's like the awful. And yeah, it, it just would be horrific. And so I would love to help the aviation industry, one, because of my personal connection with my wonderful brother-in-law, and then to watch this flight cross this flight crew on that plane as she went row to row. And there's some other things. There's some other methods that quite humbly, I, I think that they work. 
and I, I would love, um, I'd also love to emphasize how creating groups of support for one another, just to talk. It's about support, not advice. So yes, I, I'm happy to get on a plane and fly anywhere. I'm happy to do it virtually. Um, I'm, I'm more motivated and inspired to do this now because I'm concerned. I, I think that there is a tidal wave, a tsunami of mental illness that is about to crash upon us, but I think that there are ways that we can ride that wave into the safety of the shore. I, 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 I know this, as much as I believe the lie on that day eight, nine years ago, I know this truth. I know we can win this battle. I know it. I know it. I know it. I know it as well. I mean, you know, you, you've been true. You've been true at all. You've been true to Mill, and here you are today. I mean, you're an inspiration. So, what, what, what words then before we go? What words of motivation, inspiration, have you got? For aviation professionals listening to this podcast right now, what, what, what can you say to them if they're struggling at this moment in time? So thank you for a couple of things. One, thank you for what you do. Just imagine if aviation didn't exist. Imagine how we would be stuck in place and not be able to, when somebody passes away, to go be by their side. When, when somebody needs something, we would be locked in place. And so people don't realize the heroic nature of your job. And much of what you do is behind the scenes. So the first thing I'd like to say, David, to the aviation world is thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. And the second thing is to this acronym that a dear friend of mine gave to me that it just hold on, pain ends. And I'm not saying that in some Pollyanna way. And I'm never going to say that I know exactly how you feel because I think that would be the, the worst thing I could ever say to you. But I can say I can relate. I can say I empathize with you. I can say that I might even understand you. And I can say that I'm here to journey with you. That I can say that it is indeed possible, I swear to you, to move from this place of hellness to the place of the wellness. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it will take a lot of work, but in shifting the commitment to self-care, you can have these heaven-like experiences of mental health, the likes of which I never thought I would have. And it's in those deep, dark spots that I still get to, those days that I still think about ending my life, it is that memory and then the consecutive soon after experience of mental health, even for a moment that is just like, Oh my God, and it's possible, please, please, please hold on. Realize that what your mind can tell you is false. If you are berating yourself to the extent where you're thinking of killing yourself, if you have come to the point where you believe that those in your life would be better off without you, I can promise you that is the worst lie there is. Please allow me and the other great people who are endeavoring to serve you, please allow us to serve you. Please allow us to help you. Please allow us to journey with you, not in front of you, not behind you, but right on side to make this trek to your birthright mental health. Well, okay. That's, <laughs> that's, that's truly uh, emotional and motivating and inspiring. And from my side, um as i chatted to david before the podcast actually started and that's why uh 
he's a great guy because well you're a great guy I'm talking to you right now and um, he took the time today to chat about this when others didn't want to so he deserves uh, a lot of credit and um, for me personally and Aviation Zero uh, thank you so much uh, for joining me today and uh, as David has mentioned you can catch him out uh, dot Com. So thank you very much, David, for chatting with me today on Aviation United by Aviation Zero. David, thank you so much. What uh, You have made it a, the best day that I've had in a long time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much.